0: In Vermont in 1812, Mary and Ebenezer Parkhurst, a young couple, had three children, Maria, Charlotte, and Charles. After the sudden death of one of the children, the couple abandoned the other two. They were sent to an orphanage in Lebanon, New Hampshire, where they were raised under the care of an unkind man named Mr. Millshark. Millshark told them men had a greater advantage over girls in the battle of life. Charlotte, the youngest of the two, became aware that women had few economic opportunities. She felt her only chance was to be a seamstress, laundress, teacher, or sex worker. So, when she was 12 years old, She left Maria, her older sister, at the orphanage, stole a few pieces of boys' clothing, and ran away to Worcester, Massachusetts, then taking on the name of her deceased brother, Charles, or Charlie. Back East, before traveling to California, Charlie sat in his stage outside of a dance on a cold winter night, waiting for his passengers to return. The icy night air caused Charlie's delicate hands to freeze. He was humiliated. How would he explain he would be unable to drive? Charlie's friend, Liberty Childs, a fellow proud driver, took over the route, and the teasing, began. It was not long after Charlie was rescued from the cold that he left for California with long-fingered, beaded, buckskin gloves to hide and protect his fragile hands. Ask yourself this question. In general, do you feel like you always can be your true self? Has your gender ever hindered you from doing something because you felt it was something that you, as a boy or girl, should not do? Queens of the Mines features the authentic stories of gold rush women who blossomed from the camouflaged, twisted roots of California. In this chapter, we took a different approach than usual. As we continue learning about the fabulous story of self-determination, freedom of movement, and opportunity for free association with one of California's most famous stage drivers. I am Andrea Anderson with another true story from America's largest migration, The Gold Rush, here on Queens of the Mines. Chapter 9, Part 2. Charlie had driven his six horses for hours across rough terrain with a money box full of gold and a coach full of passengers, unaware that bandits lay in wait. Charlie was focused on a sharp and steep bend in the trail when a group of men wearing masks made out of long underwear surrounded the stage, stopping them. On the cliff. It was the notorious Sugarfoot and his crew. As the crew crowded in on the passengers yelling threats, Sugarfoot put his gun to Charlie's temple, his good one. His gray eye alert, stared straight ahead. Parkhurst always carried a brace of pistols stuck in his belt and was not afraid to use them. He could slice open the end of an envelope or cut a cigar out of a man's mouth from 20 feet away. But his gun was out of reach. In order to protect his passengers from the rough gang, Charlie kicked over the wagon's strong box, which contained the valuables of all of the passengers on board. As the bandits rode down the trail behind them, Parker's yelled out to Sugarfoot. If I ever see you again, it will be unpleasant. Harper Monthly's magazine journalist, John Ross Brown, sat beside Charlie on his stagecoach and asked, Do many people get killed on this route? The crusty stagecoach driver replied, Some of the drivers mashes them once in a while but that's whiskey for bad driving. Last summer, a few stages went over the grade, but nobody was hurt bad, only a few legs and arms broken. Them was opposition stages. Some of the opposition boys did it last summer, but our company's very strict. They won't keep drivers as a general thing that gets drunk and mashes up stages. Charlie did have a fantastic record until one afternoon On the Carson Pass. As he drove down the steep terrain, the lead horses suddenly veered from the trail, jerking the wagon so severely it tossed Charlie clear off. The horses went full speed, dragging Parkhurst along face down as he clung to the reins. For one moment, the team slowed down just enough for Charlie to get on his feet, running next to the coach and finally leaping into the seat. The passengers took a sigh of relief as Charlie, unaffected, steered the frightened horses back onto the road. A much-respected driver in Northern California, his fearlessness and attention to duty inspired Wells Fargo to trust the brave stage driver with special missions. On one of the missions, Charlie drove late into the night on a steep and rough mountain pass. I've traveled over these mountains so often, I can tell where the road is by the sound of the wheels. When they rattle, I'm on hard ground, and when they don't rattle, I generally look over the side to see where she's a-going. As the stage rattled along, Charlie saw Sugarfoot, the same notorious road agent, waiting in the path to stop Charlie again. Charlie chuckled to himself, and in defiance, he cracked his whip. It would be the last robbery this thief ever attempted. The team of horses charged, and Sugarfoot dove out of the way. Charlie pulled out his revolver, and as he passed the criminal, he turned and fired. Sugarfoot, hit, crawled to a nearby cabin owned by a miner. Inside, the miner saw that Sugarfoot had a bullet wound in his stomach. Sugarfoot, drifting into his death, mumbled, I've been shot by the famous one eyed Charlie. Wells Fargo was impressed by Parkhurst's bravery and presented him with a large watch and chain made of solid gold in appreciation. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Columbia Mercantile 1855. Columbia Mercantile 1855 is creating Eureka moments for every shopper. At first glance, it would appear a living museum until you look closer. In the clever Gold Rush era aesthetic, you will find a treasure trove of gold standard products for your modern life. Now more than ever, locals are discovering the amazing, reimagined, real-working Gold Rush era general store, and Teresa, the owner, has not changed or increased prices since the beginning of this COVID situation. To better serve the community, the mercantile has tripled the amount of food and beverage ordering since the shelter-in-place began. Teresa carries a mix of local and quality international products to replicate a mercantile in Colombia with diverse provisions of the 19th century when the town was California's second-largest city after San Francisco. From the mundane paper towels, toilet paper, and poison oak soap, to customer-requested French and Irish butters, firm tofu, and even duck. And of course, don't forget beer and wine. It is common to hear, wow, I didn't expect to find that here in Colombia. You can support local producers while shopping at the Mercantile, such as Diesel Family Ranch, Inner Sanctum Cellars, Indigene, Culver's, Gold Country Honey Farms, Jamestown Olive Oils, Leach's Salsas, and simply amazing kettle corn. There are also gluten-free, vegan, and dairy-free options. The Columbia Mercantile 1855 is located in Columbia State Historic Park at 11245 Jackson Street, near the St. Charles Saloon. It's a great place to keep our local economy moving. At a time like this, it is so important to shop local. And the Columbia Mercantile 1855 is friendly, welcoming, and fairly priced. They also take EBT. Open daily, 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. The 19th Amendment was passed by Congress in 1919 and ratified in 1920, granting the women the right to vote. More than 52 years before this, Charlie Parkhurst registered to vote in Santa Cruz. The Santa Cruz Sentinel on October 17, 1868 lists Charlie Parkhurst's name as recorded on the official poll list for the election of 1868. Unfortunately, the voting records from that year were burned in a fire, so we will never know. But if Charlie did vote that year, he may very well have been the first being born a woman, to vote in a presidential election in california within the next five years the railroad was rapidly replacing the stagecoach and parkhurst made the decision to give up driving he opened and operated a horse changing station saloon and ranch about halfway between santa cruz and watsonville and raised cattle on bean creek with his friend frank woodward in the winters Charlie would supplement his income by logging in the mountains of Santa Cruz, working for and living with Andy Jackson Clark and his family in Hungry Hollow. He would earn $5 a day when younger men only earned 3 Stone drunk one evening, Andy's wife told her 17-year-old son, to put the inebriated Charlie to bed. The teenager obeyed and after he assisted the man into his room and helped him change out of his boots and such, the boy returned in shock. Ma, Charlie ain't no man. Mrs. Clark and her son sensed Charlie's potential humiliation and never mentioned it to a soul. Are you enjoying the podcast? Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It is important. If you would like to donate to the continuation and production of this podcast, please check out the donate button on queensoftheminds.com. Or you can use Venmo and send it to at queensoftheminds. Okay, back to the story. For 15 years, Charlie worked these laboring jobs, finally selling his business, saving several thousands of dollars to retire on. Charlie moved onto the Moss Ranch, 60 miles north of Watsonville, in a small cabin owned by the Harmon family. In the early part of 1879, he began to complain of a sore throat that never went away. The Harmons begged for Charlie to visit the doctor, but Charlie was stubborn and old-fashioned. For Charlie's whole life, to avoid going to the doctor, he would treat himself in one of two ways. Either use the same remedies he would use on his horses, or take the leftover medicine from a friend. I'm no better now than when I commenced. Pays small and works heavy. I'm getting old. Rheumatism in my bones. Nobody to look out for the old used-up stage driver. I'll kick the bucket one of these days and that'll be the last of old Charlie. Rheumatism eventually shriveled Charlie's limbs. And due to the pain in his throat, he finally consented to be taken to a doctor, who then diagnosed his condition as cancer of the tongue and throat. Dr. Plum recommended an operation to insert a silver tube into his throat. But Charlie wanted nothing to do of this. On several instances during his stay with the Harmon family, Charlie said he had something to tell them. But he kept postponing the telling until eventually it was too late as he could no longer talk. Charlie Parkhurst succumbed to his cancer on December 18th, 1879, leaving strict instructions to be buried in the clothes he was wearing. His friends and neighbors, however, insisted on washing the body and came to the cabin to prepare him for burial. It was then discovered that Charlie Parkhurst was born a woman. As the examining doctor finished up, he then told the Harmons that Charlie, in fact, at one time had given birth. The Harman's son found Charlie's will, where he left him $600, and Charlie's locked tin trunk, which he found contained an infant's red dress and a pair of baby shoes. The discovery of Charlie's true sex became a national sensation. Charlie had succeeded in an occupation above all professions, calling for the best physical qualities of coolness, endurance, and a romantic personal bravery. It will never be known for sure Charlie's reasoning for choosing this lifestyle. At what point did Charlie have a daughter? Was he really an important witness in the court case like he had told others? Or was it lack of opportunity for adventurous work as a woman? We can assume that Parkhurst would not have become a famous stagecoach driver as a woman. It is possible that if Charlie was alive today, he would identify as transgender. One could use him or they as a pronoun for Parkhurst. They is a perfect non-binary pronoun and is great to use for people in the past as a marker of undecidability. If you were going to pick one wrong gender pronoun for Charlie, it would be she. Charlie actively asserted his gendered self, and for most of his life, he was he. And queerness and transness is something that's been around in some form, everywhere, for always. You can visit the famous, fearless, adventurous stage driver's grave today at the Pioneer Cemetery at 44 Main Street in Watsonville, California. There's a plaque at the grave, as well as at the SoCal Fire Station and the post office commemorating Charlie as the first woman to vote in the United States of America. The Parkhurst Terrace Apartments in Aptos, located along the Old Stage Route and a mile from the place of Charlie's death, is named for him. I am Andrea Anderson. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Let's meet again next time on Queens of the Minds. Queens of the Minds was written, produced, and narrated by me, Andrea Anderson. The theme song in San Francisco Bay is by DBUK. You can find the links to their music, tour dates, and merchandise, as well as the links to all of our social media and research at queensoftheminds.com. If you would like to donate to the continuation and production of this podcast, please check out the donate button on queensoftheminds.com. Or you can use Venmo and send it to at queensoftheminds. In San Francisco, Bay. San Francisco Bay. I swim most every day. I, swim most every day. I the golden game. I'm dodgy, I'm dodgy, I'm dodgy They are always sleeping right They are always sleeping right Saying it's all right Saying it's all right it's so warm. Wow. I'm gathering. I'm gathering. I'm gathering. I wrap gather. my arms around the broken place as limp bodies get, get swept away. The deaf ears don't hear me say, "Take me with okay. you."